Welcome back to Dear Skylar, my show where I talk to all kinds of incredible people about topics that I'm asked about as a transgender educator and activist, things like gender, sexuality, race, sports, mental health, masculinity, and so many things in between and beyond. As a transgender person, and specifically as a transgender man, I'm often asked about masculinity. And really, what do I mean by masculinity? And how do I define my manhood? Especially if I begin talking about how my genitals or my specific body parts or how I act don't define my masculinity, people will ask me, well, what does define your masculinity? And when we get really deep into this conversation and get into the nitty gritty, we're really talking about the gender binary and what the gender binary means and how we undo the gender binary. We should start with what the gender binary is to begin with. Most of the time when we talk about a gender binary, we're thinking about this idea or the assumption that there's only two genders, male and female, and that all people fall into these two categories neatly and comprehensively. There's a lot of complicated history about this that I encourage you to go do your own research on or to check out my book, He, She, They, How We Talk About Gender and Why It Matters, to learn more about it. So today we'll be addressing the following question, how do we undo the gender binary? To discuss this, I spoke with my friend Devin Norell, Zizim Ziz, opinion writer, professional model, DEI trainer, and trans advocate. You may notice that our conversation doesn't directly start with answering this question. Bear with us as we go because all of the different things we talk about, grief, gender identity, how we navigate both race and gender identity, all of these things are factors that have to do with how we show up in the world as ourselves, as our whole selves, and all of that is how we undo the gender binary. Take a listen. Devin Norell, I'm really excited that you're here. I'm um, excited to be here. I, we, I feel like we haven't ever spent enough time in person. We've connected so many different times in different spaces, but it's always so transient. So mm-hmm. I'm really excited to spend an hour with you here just chatting. Um, the first thing you said to me when you came here was that you feel tired. And yeah. um, I, I, I think I expect by default that most of us trans people, especially trans folks of color right now, mm-hmm. are tired. Yes. Um, I have a person who comes to one of my groups and they say that they are chronically tired. And that's like how they identify sometimes. And I'm wow. like, that makes sense. That makes sense. That's how they identify. Just generally speaking, that's, like, that's their gender for the day. <laughs> not not their gender, not their gender. I just mean that I'm, I hear people, actually multiple people, not actually just one person mm-hmm. will say in their list of things about who they are, that they're, they're tired. Yes. Um, you know, the, the chronic tiredness mm-hmm. is something that's, that's, I think, seeped into a lot of our, our, bones, if you will, for now. Mm-hmm. Um, w- one of the things that you were talking about um, struck me. You said you've written a lot about loss, especially loss of other trans and queer people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a year ago, I, um, a year ago, I went to a, an event. It was um, put on by Queen Jean, um, Raquel Willis. Mm-hmm. Um, it was at MoMA PS1, and it was about um, black trans um, life essentially. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. it was a beautiful event. And when I walked into the room, it was a vigil for all the black trans people, mostly black trans women mm-hmm. that, um, that we've lost. Mm-hmm. And I, I started sobbing. I started weeping. Mm-hmm. Um, and thinking about it now, I have the same feelings and, and as somebody who is not black, and is also a person of color and also is trans, I think there's intersections I can understand and intersections that I obviously don't mm-hmm. share. And I was curious um, as a black trans person, as somebody who has lost people, as somebody who is holding this heaviness as you walk through the world, mm-hmm. um, h- how, how do you hold it? And what helps you, I think, um, what helps you uh, navigate your mental health as, as you hold all of that? 
I do believe that if I, w I hadn't been writing about loss for so, like so much loss for so long that I may have not been as impacted. But uh, in a way, it these people already feel like family, right? Mm. And to, then to have to write about their deaths, mm. I feel like this is someone I grew up with after mm. the fact. You know, I'm learning all about their childhoods, how they, how we lost them, um, how their family treated them, mm. and, and, and empathizing with these people because so many of these folks did not have uh, family that respected them. Mm. Um, on top of also other media outlets misgendering them. Right. Um, so yeah, I think for me there is a significant amount of escaping. Um, I think there's a lot of crying. That's a nice amount that. of crying at home, not really in public, <laughs> not because I don't want to. I think when I think I have cried in public a couple of times. I've been to plenty of um, Queen Jean's uh, protests, mm. and there are times where we we've collectively cried in public. All um, right, I mean, wa even watching Queen Jean's joy makes me cry. Mm -hmm. um, Sometimes, and, and it's it's a it's a it's a there are tears that are mixed with wonderment with joy but mm. also with this grief and this like deep pain because i think she she is somebody who holds so much empowerment and yes. so much love for all like you can you can like feel every ounce of love she has for the work that she does yes she does and at the same time i imagine how so many people don't have that love for themselves because mm -hmm. because that love really that she has is, is clear that it's love for herself as well yes and it's so powerful it's like yes. contagious you know what i mean it's such a beautiful love um and I think about how many people don't have access to that as well. Mm -hmm. I think I think about how that beauty that she has carries with all you know with her all the the death that she's probably witnessed, that right. all the loss we've had, and somehow that loss is is like woven into this beautiful empowerment. And yeah, I, I don't know. I was just reflecting on that as you were talking. Actually, no, I'm glad you brought th brought that up because uh, as you were saying that um, her. Uh, so the protest used to be weekly on Wednesday, but now mm. it's more so of like a community gathering and free dinner. Mm. And sometimes I go because I've been isolating myself a lot in my house and I live alone. Mm. Um, and I realized actually after my trip that I do want to see trans people more often mm. in a capacity that's not about death or mourning people. Yeah. Um, and after going to Cuba with a delegation of all black trans people to meet other black trans people, I do at least once or twice a month try to get out of my house, once or twice every other Wednesday, and go to her community dinners. Mm. And honestly, it is some of the most fulfilling fulfilling moments of the month for me. Mm. <laughs> it is a way to escape as well, but also to be present um, and to acknowledge what's happening um, while also uplifting and supporting each other through the mess, if I may. I'm talk, I'm, I've been t discussing with her, like leading one of those sessions. And I said, mm -hmm. honestly, I don't think I have much to contribute in terms of a conversation, but I would love to have a game night. <laughs> you know, like, it's not that I don't want to have a conversation. It, it's, it's just things are feel very heavy still. Yeah. And what brings me joy um, other than gathering with other trans people is playing games, whether it be mm. board games, card games, video games. Something fun. Well, I think it begs the question of how can we create community that isn't 
in defiance of 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 pain right like mm-hmm. how can we create community that is that is actually centered on joy as mm-hmm. opposed to or, or play actually mm-hmm. um instead of saying let's create community when we're when we're crying which is important right. as well right. of course but how can we create community that's just for dinner that's just to play a video game that's just to hang out mm-hmm. um, and it's something that I've I've thought a lot about especially I think the pandemic kind of forced me to think a, a bit about because most of the trans people that I spent time with before the pandemic were through, through work I would mm-hmm. show up to a panel and there'd be five trans people there I'd, you know <laughs> go the to only a, trans people in the room <laughs> <laughs> um, of course uh, I would go to you know a pride event and there'd be trans people there but mm-hmm. I, I didn't I didn't seek intentional time the way I, I think I now do mm-hmm. um, with with trans folks that is outside of work, mm. um, that's outside of this space of, of sort of revolution. Yes. Um, and I find that in and of itself to be revolutionary, but yes. it's for us as trans people, not for the viewer to gain something or to learn something or to expand themselves. It's for us to be ourselves. Yes, trans, but hear so much more than that mm-hmm. um, you should absolutely watch my show because it's about that okay i will <laughs> it's, it's it's ironically it's not just about trans people but it is about um revolutionary spaces that yeah. aren't that isn't work that isn't pride and that isn't a bar mm. the first episode is about a book club um although this is in buffalo you know i think there are book clubs across the country and and i do realize that um thousands of people will see this show and so I worry about the folks in this book club because they might be targeted mm. but the fact that it is a book club for all black gay people mm. um, and they're reading banned books by all black authors mm. and or black uh, queer authors so we collectively read um, uh, All Boys Aren't Blue have you heard of that book by George M. Johnson? I think I've read pieces from it actually it's really good um, I'm in a point in my life where I am audiobooking everything because yep. <laughs> I used to read um, I was a huge big bookworm. I used to be like two or three books a week if I could. And now, mm. again, I can barely get out of bed. So mm. audiobooks, it is. Um, and we just discussed the importance of having these spaces, um, these types of spaces, the importance of reading these banned books, the importance of why are these books, ban- books banned? These books wouldn't be in ban if they weren't of importance is, is essentially what we... Right. narrowed it down to, right? And so w- what I do enjoy about the book bands is that people are more intrigued to go f- seek out these things and the ban- read them. The band book list is a very actually well sold book list. Yes, um, it is. And it, it, you know, it's funny because I, I have heard many people say, you know, getting your book banned does wonders for sales, mm-hmm. which is fascinating if mm-hmm. you really think about it. But um, I think there's also obviously a very harmful nature of what books are banned and why. Right. Usually, you know, it's because people are marginalized from sort of ide- some, some sort of identity that they're actually empowered by mm-hmm. that is then threatening to the systems that right. try to disempower us. Right. I mean, it erases human experience. And, and the and and the stats that we have on this is that four out of every ten books that have been banned are of uh, or by LGBTQI authors. Surprise! Right. <laughs> it's like how do we get rid of this experience so that we we only have this one human experience and this other thing doesn't exist if the books don't exist if you can't read the books if you burn yeah. the books if we say this is illegal yeah. that's essentially what's happening. So yeah, yeah it's just a, the importance of having these spaces, the importance of reading these books, um, the importance of getting together. Uh, in ways that are celebrating joy, just like you said. Yeah. And and I was surprised by how many different, uh, how do I want to call it, types of groups? No, 
collectives, I guess. <laughs> I don't want to call it that because there's so many different things. Like we're going hiking on one of these episodes. Mm. Activities. Sorry? <laughs> I said activities. Yeah, sure. Activities. <laughs> I love that. Um, I was surprised by how many, how many different activities um, they were able to find mm. for the show. And honestly, I have been looking for spaces like this. Yeah. Um, again, I go to Queen Jean's uh, community dinner, but like I had started finding um, book clubs here, uh, board game spaces. There are plenty across the city, thankfully. It's just, it's a more a matter of how can I find space that has trans people in it? There's mm. um, I just found another space that's video games. Um, it's an all black trans led organization in the Bronx that's holding like a video game space for every Friday, mm. eat some food, hang out with other queer people, other trans people, play some games. Devin Lowe's old group at uh, Gay Men's Health Crisis that's now being led by uh, Ray, uh, which is for all trans mass people. I think it's so powerful to consider who we can be when we're not fighting, right? Who we can mm. be when we're not tired, who we can be when we are playing. Mm -hmm. And whether that be um, playing video games, whether that be playing uh, or having dinner, whether that be talking about a book or mm -hmm. a book club, going hiking, I think um, there are so many experiences that can encapsulate who we are when we're not in defiance, right, mm -hmm. of systemic oppression. Mm -hmm. um, as I was sort of preparing for this conversation with you, I was thinking about a conversation you and I have had previously that is also about defining ourselves, which is about mm. gender, gender expression. Um, and I think one of the things that you've told me before is there's this tension between being perceived as a cis man, mm -hmm. um, at which you are not, and mm -hmm. then also being perceived as a trans man, which you are also not. Mm -hmm. So I was curious if you could share a little bit more about that, especially as it pertains to your intersections as a black person, um, as a, a trans person in a community where I, I know that many non-binary folks are also not perceived in mm -hmm. the trans community. I just... I'm thinking about it actually from a historical context sure. um, because I was just doing this historical research for a fluid project about gender and sex and where it, where it came from and how black people aren't really afforded uh, the opportunities to be a anything but masculine mm. at all, period, mm. because of... Um, no matter the gender side at birth. Right. Um, because of the at one point in our history, um, we've always had the words gender and sex and they've mostly been used synonymously with sex being the word that was preferred until about the early 20th century, mm -hmm. um, when people started using the word gender to allude to sex because they, uh, sex was now being used um, in regards to sexual intercourse, and that was right. like taboo to discuss. Right. Um, however, in the 19th century, jumping a century before, there were all of these categories that were created that were used to justify um, imperialism, that mm -hmm. being... White men were uh, the, at the top of the hierarchy, white, a white woman being next, and they had to be virtuous, et cetera, this and that. Mm. And black women couldn't be virtuous. They couldn't be white women. Uh, lesbian women were put on that same level as black women, as well as sex workers. And all three categories were considered mannish. Mm. Okay. And of course, we have the history of black men being perceived as uh, barbaric. <laughs> okay, another, mm. I guess, terrible word for mannish. Not to mm. say that mannish isn't bad already, but um, I think we understand the the insinuations of that there. And we bring that to the current time and the fact that transphobia, especially now, is still so widely 
um, use against black women. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, you're Serena Williams. You're so right. muscular. The same things that um, trans women face on a daily basis. And what I notice about my intersections are already always being um, defined as a masculine person, even if I felt like I was just in a dress. Mm-hmm. Um, Somehow the way that the words that people would use to describe me were always like masculine leaning. Um, the assumption that I, now I should say the assumption now that I'm just a cis man and the conversations that I hear, I hear now because I'm perceived as a cis man, the way that people talk about women around me and, and I you know mm. have to stop these folks and say, no, that's not OK. That's misogynistic. And, oh, you must be gay if you believe that mm. <laughs> as if gay is an insult. Like, yes, I am queer. I am all the way queer. Absolutely love it. Um <laughs> But I think some of the complications that I have with that is that I do feel really feminine a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a huge part of my identity. It's something that I rejected for a long time um, Mm -hmm. until my physical or medical transition, if I may. Um, I also, just a sidebar, I always say that a transition is for everyone else because I I already knew who I was. Mm -hmm. And it's really about other people getting to know that side of me that I've hid Mm -hmm. for so long. Mm -hmm. Um, But... More affirmation than transition. Right. Um, and honestly, I don't, in my opinion, I don't really need everyone else's affirmations in, in many ways. I meant your into, own affirmation. Oh, yes. But in, in, in also getting into being perceived as a cis man, a lot of the times I'm still not affirmed, mm. <laughs> you know, because it's, oh, you're a cis person. Um, even from within the trans community of like, oh, you don't have trans voice. And I'm like, what the hell is trans voice? You know, mm. but then I think about the fact that everyone has always said that my voice is deep. And again, going back to being a mannish woman, mm. because maybe, maybe because I'm black. Um, mm. But um, this idea that because I look a certain way, I can't be feminine. Um, I can't wear dresses or it doesn't make sense. So why would you transition all the way, quote unquote, mm. uh, just to then claim that you're non-binary, non-binary must look and be perceived a certain way. You don't look androgynous or you did look androgynous, but you kept going. And so like, you're just a man now or mm. the many, many <laughs> microaggressions. Um, and then the, this idea that I'm trans, you know, I have my own internal battle battles with that because I think of the, again, the pushback, from even within the the trans community of you can't be trans and non-binary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. like, okay. And it's it's actually, it feels many times like arguing with cis people. And it's just like, okay, do I have this argument or do I just leave it alone? It makes me kind of consider also the ways that different communities segment themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things I've heard from a lot of my friends who are both black and trans mm-hmm. is that there 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 isn't space for for these folks in either segment. And what I mean by that is like a lot of black folk, sorry, black trans folks that I know don't feel that they are welcomed in black communities mm-hmm. um, or rather black cis communities. Right. And a lot of, of black trans folks don't feel that they are welcomed in white trans spaces. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I was wondering like in that, in that context, especially as it pertains to how also masculinity is perceived and how you are often read as a cis man. And you've even told me that when you say that you're trans, people will assume that you're actually trans feminine. Yes. Um, so given, <laughs> 
given given all of those and the ways well, yeah, that you've that. been you've been segmented and sort yeah, of yeah. relegated to not you know not black enough or not trans enough or not cis enough. I think I even read in 2014 you were denied a, a role in some campaign because you weren't trans enough or mm -hmm. cis enough. That was Barney's. Um, yes, and I. I just wonder, um, could you tell me a little bit more about that experience? N not that specific one, unless you'd like to share no, that one. Um, um, but that experience of existing sort of in between in many different ways. Do you remember the first time you recognized that you were, you know, not black enough, not trans enough, not cis enough, not, you know, is there a moment you can pinpoint? You know, it's funny because it, it's so much easier, right, at this time in, in my life to blend in with in cis male spaces, if mm, I may. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say cishet. I'm just going to say mm, cis male. Mm -hmm. um, sort of let people assume you're a cis man. Yes. Mm. Um, I think sometimes I'm a little surprised when women hit on me because I think I come off as feminine, but then it's like, oh, mm. I don't. Mm. <laughs> and I get, I, I get very confused by it. But yes, as soon as I, not necessarily to women, but definitely to um, men, as soon as I reveal that I'm trans, then there's just this air of misogyny mm. um of course always the questions about what's in my pants which obviously is just really weird and creepy and i don't answer um but there's kind of a, an entitlement also to my body and then just mm -hmm. kind of like this otherness that's placed on me of like oh well, you wouldn't understand because you're not one of us mm. as if i'm not um like for instance like someone has insinuated that i wouldn't understand what it's like to be regarded as a predator walking down the street and by that they mean like the woman that turns their back to stare at them to make sure they're not about to get robbed by this black man that's walking behind mm. them and i'm like no i've definitely experienced that too as a man and as a woman as a mm. masculine woman like mm. it happens to us as well um but there's this so, idea. You, so you're saying sorry just to make sure that i understood as well so you're saying that in in perhaps spaces with uh, with black cis men they are claiming you don't understand what it's like to be perceived as a threat right um that's and an interesting accusation that's, that's one <laughs> especially <laughs> as given the it. fact that trans people are consistently considered a threat and that's right. why there's 400 anti-trans you'd be in the surprised country. But anyways people's audacity <laughs> people's audacity then then it becomes when I explain that I'm non-binary, oh, you can't be that, you know, like you're too masculine for that. Mm. Um, and, and, and then trying to have this conversation with, uh, especially with cis gay men about what masculinity and femininity looks like, and it can look like whatever you want it to look like. Mm. And there's just like uh, such a huge desire, and I hate to generalize, but it happens so commonly, in, at least in my experience. There seems to be just 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 huge desire for every man that exists to be masculine, or mm. any perceived man that exists to be masculine, and so to come into these spaces and say, "Well, that's a bunch of bullshit," they aren't happy about that. You know, mm. um, there's a lot of pushback. Then to go into spaces that aren't predominantly black, I know that in my experience, and I've, I've witnessed this with other very feminine trans femme people, where we are told that we can't be non-binary specifically because we're black. Mm. <laughs> like, that's just it. You know, there isn't, oh, you're not feminine enough, you're not masculine enough. It's just that you can't be non-binary because you're black. And, I'm, and, and I, I remember asking one person, what the hell do you even mean by that? Like, mm. so only white people are allowed to break gender roles, only white people are allowed to explore. And that's essentially what they meant. They yeah. pretty much confirmed that. And I just was completely flabbergasted. And at one point I sat there and I, was, I just felt like, Damn, 
you know, it, it was around a time when someone told me that I needed to stop in identifying as androgynous mm. because I don't look androgynous. And that that's not, or I didn't look androgynous anymore, I should say. And that's not, if I'm going to call myself a model in an, or an androgynous model, I wasn't saying I was either one of these things. I was just saying I was a model. Mm. Um, then I need to perform the part. Mm. And I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> wow, I just forgot about that. Actually, <laughs> that was not a fun moment because it was also from a, a non-black um, trans model. And I remember mm. arguing them down like, how dare you even say that? How dare you sit here and like uphold these structures? This is like... The most, um, this is white supremacy. Like you're, you're literally just catering to cishet ideals of what gender should be. And I was yeah. really, really upset. And I'm like, listen, I don't have anything against you being a binary trans person. Me being non-binary does not take away from that. And I feel like you're projecting onto me. Mm. And like you feel intimidated by that. And I don't understand why. Like why can't we have conversations about the fact that you and I can both be perceived as masculine people and feel differently about our bodies and, and about how we identify on the inside and how we communicate that, that to others. And, and having another person say that, <laughs> oh my gosh, I didn't, forgot all about all these microaggressions actually. Um, I do want to get back to your point because you asked something uh, specific, but I do before that, I do want to say this really quickly. Having another person say to me, I'm not insecure like non-binary people when we get into like these cis gay spaces, cis gay male spaces. And it's okay if like a guy touches me, obviously just non-binary people just don't know anything about their gender. And so they just can't deal with it. <laughs> that is a comment that is all over the place. And I looked at this person and I was like, have you never heard of fucking consent? <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know? Um, and <laughs> we had, the funny thing is we had another friend of ours in the car who was also trans. And they didn't say anything, I think, because I was just, like, so angry and I didn't really need the backup for that moment. Just sure, sure. I needed to just explain, like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Mm. This is about consent. It has nothing to do with anyone's identities. Yeah. If you feel comfortable getting touched, that means you just feel comfortable. Maybe you just want the touch. That's it. Just say you want the fucking touch. You know, don't put it on other folks. Don't put it on non-binary folks. A lot of you don't know what kind of trauma people have been in with their bodies. So many folks have been sexually assaulted. And you have to think about the fact that regardless of what a guy's sexuality is, so many men feel so entitled to other people's bodies, mm. not just male bodies, yeah. women's bodies, and especially non-binary people. And forget it if you tell them that you're trans, they have a field day, yeah. <laughs> you know? And you have to say, what are you doing? Like, I didn't consent to you doing that to me. If that's something you're okay with, that's your business, but don't put it on yeah. other folks. So I was actually, as you were talking, two things. One, um, I think what you're talking about is is spot on. I think that, that men, specifically cis men, feel deeply entitled and are taught to be deeply entitled. They didn't come up with it on their own. Right. You know, they've, they're taught to be entitled to other people's bodies. Yes. Um, and that's something I've experienced as somebody who walked the world as a woman and as somebody, something that I experience even now when I, at any kind of queer space, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. men touch me <laughs> without any consent. Yes, it is. Um, okay. and it's almost as if the consent is is assumed by walking through the doors of a queer space, and mm -hmm. and I and I despise that. Um, but one yes. of the things that you you said about um, a, a, a non-black person, a white person, I think you said a white trans person saying that you as a black person can't be non-binary. Mm -hmm. I think this is a rampant problem that is is actually uh, it's so insidious that communities of color actually use these kinds of narratives as well. Mm -hmm. And as a, as a mixed race person, I have often felt that my queerness would makes me whiter. 
Oh. Um, or my, my transness makes me more white because there's a narrative that whiteness is where queerness lies, where wow. white people are allowed to be non-binary, white mm -hmm. people are allowed to you know, be trans. And I've, re I've heard this repeated through my connections with many people who are immig immigrants, um, mm -hmm. especially immigrants of color, right? Mm -hmm. So other Korean families or Korean American families, other East Asian families, um, even, uh, you know, I, I've had friends who are African, of, of African immigrants or like, countries in Africa and such. Mm -hmm. Anyways, we can go on, but yes. it, it, I don't need to name all the countries that we're talking about. You know what I mean? But mm -hmm. the, there's, a, there's a narrative where I've heard parents from communities of color say, oh, you... We, we failed you in, mm. in upholding our community um, or our, our traditions because you're so whiteified that now you think you're trans. Whiteified, oh my God. Um, or white, whitewashed, whatever. Oh my God, I'm going to use that now. <laughs> um, um, but yes, I, I know what you're talking about. It so does happen I, in the black community too. Yeah, and I've heard that from, from lots of, of black folks that will say that black queer and trans folks will say, oh, my parents have said that I have lost my blackness or that I'm somehow betraying the black community by mm -hmm. my queerness. Um, and it's it's actually such an insidious ideal that queerness is reserved for white folks mm -hmm. because white folks and specifically white supremacy, not a specific individual, mm -hmm. historically were the people that eradicated queerness because right. that was the way to establish power. Mm -hmm. um, and and unfortunately, communities of color, I don't, I'm not I'm blaming any specific community, have have woven that in this internalization yeah, yeah. to then try to align with their own communal integrity mm -hmm. that somehow is opposed to queerness, which actually was traditionally revered in a lot of these societies. Yeah, I mean, I could definitely say, <laughs> I'm still laughing at Wi-Fi. Um, coming home from college, I had actually been out uh, to my mom as gay since I was 14 or 15. And then actually, the, this first incident might have happened in high school. And I went to a prep school, and um, there were only 200 students. And my class had the most people of color and especially the most black people. Mm. And <laughs> when I came out as gay, my mom was like, oh my God, you're around too many white kids. But especially when mm. I came <laughs> when I came home from college and she, the first thing she asked me was like, what does your friend group look like? Because mm. I told her I had like found like this group of like all lesbians. And I mean, my mom and I, I love my mom to death, but um, if I'm being real and I'm being honest, like my childhood was tragic because she was just very, very, very emotionally and physically abusive. Mm. And then it's taken this long for me to realize that she has narcissistic personality disorder. And like, I know where it comes from because I know that she had a really tough childhood mm. as a um, black person growing up in the hood um, with no money and, and being put in foster care, mm. um, being abandoned by her black mom and her Asian dad. Like mm. there's, there's a lot going on there, you know? So. Yeah. I and there's other layers to it, and but I get where her personality has come from. It's just that a lot of the hurt that she had was projected onto me mm. as a child, and so now someone who wants to be a perfectionist has a gay child, mm. and the idea of it was was that I was embarrassing her, and also. Why I taught you better. Why are you doing all this white shit? Mm. <laughs> you know, and yeah. I'm like, um, how did what does this have to do with being white? Like, mm. I knew I was queer, I didn't know what the word for it was, but I knew I was queer when I was a baby. Like, mm. I was looking at women, right? I was looking at women, I definitely was looking at Angelina Jolie, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> the lead, yeah. but there was always this kind of idea that. 
Um, I remember like my mom would always have like queer friends and she actually lost a lot of friends to HIV and AIDS. And, and she was so nice and sweet to them. And like some of these people were like her best friends. But like when it came to me, I mean, it was like World War Three in my household mm. because because of my queerness mostly. Mm. Um, and and it's not just queerness. It's also like once I started therapy to like really work through a lot of the trauma that she put me that I experienced with her mm-hmm. in my childhood. Then it was just like that's for white people. Mm. Why are you doing this? This is for white black people. Don't do this. We we just hold our head up. We don't cry. Mm. And and also associating gayness with that, you know, gayness is a soft thing. Like we aren't like this. We aren't like these people that you go to school with. You know better than that. You need to act a certain way because otherwise, and it goes back to also to to how white people are viewing us. The white people will view you as weak. Mm. You won't be able to uh, assimilate with white people if you are this or you are that. And I'm just like, so there, mm. it's okay for them to do that. But if I'm literally employing the same skills skills if i may in terms of therapy not gayness <laughs> sure. let me let me clarify that um then i'm not i'm not aligning with the very people that you're asking me to align with like it's not making any sense to me right now i'm really i've had a very confusing childhood because of that yeah um it sounds like survival tactics from from your mom i mean i, I not to dismiss any of the trauma that you've experienced mm-hmm. it, it sounds like the sort of systemic problem of of how how do we uh, curate, cultivate our own survival in systems um, that mm. don't want us to. And part yes. of that is about not displaying weakness. Part of that is not assimilating to whiteness, but also still assimilating to whiteness. Right. Um, and this tension of, I think, in not the same way, but uh, because my, my family is not black, but my my, my mom is a, is a Korean immigrant. Mm. And in many ways, she was demanded to assimilate to whiteness. She was the only Asian kid and non-white kid in her class. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that like when she was growing up, I mean, as a kid, and and there was this pressure to be white at mm-hmm. school, mm-hmm. but then also another pressure from her parents at home of don't don't be like the white kids. We're not white, oh but goodness. also be American because mm-hmm. if you're not, we're outsiders. And it's just this fascinating way of again survival mm-hmm. and how how do we survive these systems that don't want us to retain our diversity except when they can profit from it. Right when we add all these intersections of the world telling us essentially be this part of you, but also don't right. <laughs> um, assimilate, but not like that. Mm-hmm. Um, hold on to your diversity, but only so far as we can profit off of it. Yes. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, first and foremost, I mean, confusing. Sure. Probably one of the most confusing for me, um, childhoods, honestly, because uh, again, I have, always known who I was and just felt so very compelled to like to perform right not I won't say not solely for white people but more specifically for my mom Mm. and like almost feeling like I was going to let her down by Mm. not performing in a certain way right um both your gender and your blackness yes absolutely and and it's so weird because there was there was actually such a huge emphasis on if I may quote unquote acting white in my mm. in my um household. And um <laughs> my mom just always had this this um saying of don't be a product of your environment because we grew up in Harlem when Harlem was a terrible neighborhood. It's a mm. much better neighborhood now mm. because it's been so gentrified, of course. Mm-hmm. Um and the confusion that came with that is, but remember that you're black. <laughs> you know, and it's yeah. like 
okay, so what are we? Yeah. You know, I don't actually know anymore. Like, I've always known that we're black, but like, you're telling me that I'm not supposed supposed to perform blackness or I'm supposed to it. perform <laughs> blackness in a certain way that's not um, tangible or um, not tangible. That's not acceptable to uh, white people. Right. Um, th so the first thing that comes to mind is just like a lot of confusion, confusion and like having to. And I mean, that's why I put myself through therapy is because mm. even with gender, it's like. I know I'm this thing, but like I can't find a way to like reconcile it with what I've been taught. Mm. And I'm trying to find that medium, but the medium is not working for me either. Mm. So what do I do? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that ultimately became the uh from my therapist, this idea of like you need to live your life for yourself because mm. you're living it for other people right now. Mm. And these people are telling you that um you can't be queer because you're black. Also, you're taking away from your blackness by being queer. Mm. And I'm just like, you know, it's, just, it's, a, it's a repetitive and dangerous uh, cycle. There is, I guess you can say there was a fire in me to be rebellious mm. after a while. And, mm. and I hate to call it that because I don't think, I think is it more important to call it revolutionary than to call it That word came to my mind too. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's more important to say that it's revolutionary because to say that we are rebelling is to say that we are dangerous. Mm. I think there's those connotations there to say that we aren't good people or to say that what we are doing, because it is against the status quo, it is ultimately evil mm. and it's not. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, there was a burning fire to be rebellious or mm. to rebel against these ideas that kept being placed in for me to assimilate with whiteness to and it, and it's not just I should also mention that a lot of what my mom expected of both my brother and I were to marry into whiteness too mm. which is weird because again it's like also remember your body. yeah well it sounds it sounds like it's uh you know you you have it's I hear a tension as you describe the word rebel like your experience as rebellious mm -hmm. and I wonder if it's less rebellious because so for me rebellious is defining defining something by what you don't want it to be, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whereas perhaps it could be the, you asking yourself the question of who am I beyond these con confines, right? Who am yes. I if I if I don't have this box that everybody's put me in? Who am I beyond that? And mm. I think that, it, you know, not to, I don't want to wordsmith your, your experience, but I guess what, I, what was coming to mind to me was not re rebellious, but sort of radical acceptance. If I accept yeah. more of mm -hmm. what I could be, not even what I am, mm -hmm. but more of what I could be, what becomes of that? And yes, it, it does by default rebel against the systems that confine you. Yeah. But what if we define it as not rebelling, but mm -hmm. rather exploring imagination, dreaming, um, just allowing? Um, this, this is so interesting that you use that word exploring because I I know for myself, and I just feel like for people of color, for BIPOC, BIPOC people in general, like exploration of yourself is just not tangible at all yeah. especially in your childhood and i think right actually i think it's dangerous to do it yeah i'm going to say that for the most part i'm projecting because i i can't think of specific uh specific instances where i would paint or you know just explore through painting or writing and my mom was would never show interest in those things you know mm. it was like well it's not for me it's not by me it's not about me so like mm. why am i looking at this thing that you painted mm. um so that's why i say i think i'm projecting but i i do believe that like exploration is is not 
almost not a, I hate to phrase it this way. It's not that it's just tangible. It's almost like it's not allowed. I think you're like spot on. It's like we have this playbook and if we, if this playbook said that these things were legal and these things were not, being queer is illegal. Right. <laughs> In every BIPOC family um, that I can think of. Well, what happens when we allow people to explore, right? Especially people who are marginalized, especially people who have been told that they are below this sort of, you know, some sort of level that somehow they are inferior in some way. Mm -hmm. If we let them explore, if we let them uh, self-determine, right? Mm -hmm. Then they will be a powerful entity. Yes. And it goes back, I was just having a conversation with another friend of mine about the the origins of the constitution, which mm -hmm. was in upholding slavery yes. and written by enslavers, right? right? Majority by enslavers. Right. Um, and, and if we think about that, and the bodily autonomy attacks that, that it, you, you must have when you are enslaving people, mm -hmm. um, especially enslaving people based on the color of their skin and the construct of race. Um, if we think about that system, then what becomes of the concept of letting a person who would be marginalized in this system, mm -hmm. what, what, what becomes if we let them define themselves? <laughs> what becomes if we offer them the rights to say, who am I? And it's mm -hmm. not even answering the question yet. It's just asking it, right? Mm -hmm. Who am I and who can I be? And when we give them that power, um, I think that's very, well, not we. When the country doesn't want to give them their power, mm -hmm. it's because they're afraid of the power that they actually hold, right? They're, right? they're not afraid of no power. It's actually because we, and this is something that I am always careful of how I phrase it, but trans people and queer people, and especially trans and queer people of color, do threaten the systems of power that oh, exist absolutely. in this country. Mm -hmm. And I would like that to be the case. <laughs> I want us to threaten the systems of power because those systems of power are destructive. Yes, I mean, if we, by threatening the systems of power, we are kind of reverting back to what things, how things existed before colonialism, before white supremacy. And I, what came to mind as you were saying us uh, was Uganda. Mm. And Uganda had five genders before colonialism, okay? And it's not just that they have five genders, but most African nations were not killing people for being queer. Many of the societies didn't even have hierarchical structures that were based on gender. They're based right. on age. Right. So, but we need well, not we. Capitalism <laughs> needs these structures um, to maintain control. Capitalism slash white supremacy. Honestly, at this point, I don't really see a difference between the two things. They just seem one and the same. Mm. Um, the the systems that they benefit from are continuously keeping us oppressed. And until both of them, or one or both, are eradicated, we will just, again, continue in this cycle of we are uh, to be dealt with, to be eradicated, to to literally be wiped off the face of the earth, in mm -hmm. which imperialists have already tried to do. And my whole thing is, like, if it wasn't natural, then why does it continue to happen, even mm -hmm. in the face of white supremacy and capitalism? We're still here, <laughs> and we didn't just like you know learn this overnight. Something that has, in my opinion, has been innate. Um, I think the language might be new now, but I think for me, I always knew I was something other than what I was assigned. Mm. I just couldn't put those things into words, but I knew I was different mm. because it was the systems tell us that we are different. Like the systems tell us that what we are thinking, once we finally do have the words like, oh, okay, this is what it is. Oh, that's bad. Mm. Oh, I can't be these things. But I was already thinking these things about myself 
I already knew I was different or I already knew I was attracted to certain things. I already knew I wanted to be perceived a certain way before I had the language. Sure. And so identity most of the time precedes language. Right. So this isn't something that's just popping up out of the blue. It's just mm -hmm. not a movement that people just made up. Mm -hmm. It's something that we are feeling deep down inside. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's that's also what's most important to me now going forward with my writing is is just I know that a lot of folks are busy um, targeting the bills that are targeting us. But I think I still am trying in some way to come from a place of understanding and, and explaining to people like, I'm not just making this up, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Like um, I didn't see, it is important to see trans people in media, but I didn't just see some trans person decide I'm gonna be trans one day. Mm -hmm. I just felt it mm -hmm. internally and innately. And I think I do wanna focus my writing or move in that direction again um, in terms of talking about my gender and also explaining how I'm a non-binary person and, and explaining how me presenting as masculine does not mean I'm not feminine and me presenting as feminine does not mean I'm not masculine. Um, how these two things are one and the same. I think that's really important in eradicating white supremacy, in eradicating the binary itself is like getting that information out there for people to understand and learn and just kind of explore even for themselves and say that, okay, well now I have this document written from a trans person's perspective and it is completely different than what these bills are telling me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So maybe I should think twice, maybe I should do more research before I chime in about someone swimming in a meet or someone using the restroom or what, or going to a drag show. When I think about uh, trans people writing our own stories, mm -hmm. um, I think there's so much symbolism in that. It's not just us writing our own stories, it's us being able to provide our authenticity from our own voices, again, right. determining, self-determining yes. who we are without these systems putting it in place for us. Mm -hmm. And when I consider that, and we've talked about so many different intersections, being black, being queer, being trans, being non-binary, mm -hmm. um, being perceived as cis, being perceived as trans, being perceived as man, being perceived as not. Mm -hmm. um, and when I think about all this, it's about sort of like, what kind of access do we have to who we truly are beyond these labels, beyond these false binaries, right? Mm. If we're, you know, one of the things I always I always think about is I didn't transition in order to be somebody else's version of a man, I mm -hmm. transitioned to be myself. Yes. Does that align with some people's version of manhood? Sure. Mm. Um, but does that mean that I'm trying to be a cis man? Not really. And that mm. was something I had to develop over time because mm. initially transition to me did mean trying to be a cis man mm. because that was what I was offered. That was the manhood that was present to me, right? Because that's all the representation that we had. Exactly. And one of the things that I learned and that I'm so grateful that I discovered sort of throughout my college career being on a men's team filled with cis men um, was wait, hold on, I'm actually not cis. And actually that wasn't the goal ever. And I knew that intellectually, mm -hmm. but I had to digest it in a way that said, wait, hold on, hold on. I'm actually trying to be me. Mm -hmm. And we use the word man. And I have decided that the word man fits me because I feel that I am a man. But it's just a word at the yeah. end of the day. And what does it mean if we can exist beyond these words, if we can define masculinity, femininity, manhood, personhood, for me, Skylarhood, for you, Devin Norellhood, right? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be more than just this label? And what kind of power can we give ourselves? And then actually everybody else too, not just trans and non-binary people, but actually mm -hmm. cis people too, right? What does it mean to, to exist beyond that?
But I mean, I mean, generally speaking, it, as you were saying, like I, I'm striving to be cis. Immediately thought about this woman that came down on non-binary, but trans woman that came down on non-binary yeah. people, and the, the language that she used, it was very clear that that was the goal to be. Mm-hmm. Not to be perceived as a cis woman, but to be a cis woman. Right, yeah. And I think, and I hope that the people that are listening to this understand what I mean when I say that. I think, obviously, you do. Um, but We'll say more. What, what do you mean? I'm not really sure how to describe it, but other than essentially to just fully assimilate into cis heteronormative life. <laughs> well, and I think and I think the most empathetic way to put it is it's survival, right? In the yeah. same way that you were you were taught to to be black but not be black, but to be white, but remember that you're black in the same way that I was taught to be American but be Korean, but same with my mom and mm-hmm. all the kind of stuff, right? I think mm-hmm. how how do we move beyond this narrative of survival and and instead to actually life-giving, not just life-saving. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, it's just about doing away with the gender binary at the end of the day. Mm. And, and, I, and, I, and and as I'm saying this, I don't mean that we are trying to completely eradicate men and women. Right. What we want to do, get rid of, to do away with, is the idea that if you are a man, you need to pre- perform mm. a certain way. And if you're a woman, you need to perform a certain role, you know? Right. Um, the binary is harming literally every single person on the mm. face of this earth. Cis men, cis women, trans women... Trans, uh, trans men, non-binary people, whoever it is that exists, it is harming all of us, and that is because, um, I mean, let's look, let's look at, let's go back to black men. The idea that gayness is removing a person's blackness, it is also the toxic masculinity that com- that comes into play when, oh well, I'm a man and I'm a black man, and so I need to perform, I need to perform this way, mm. and it's toxic. It yeah. is, it is the same type of toxic masculinity that is killing trans women. Yeah. It is. Well, and killing men. So yes. middle-aged men are most like are the the most common population of people to kill themselves is middle-aged mm-hmm. men. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we also are missing the toxic masculinity, this inability to question their own selves to be more than what the gender binary tells cis men that they right. can be mm-hmm. is actually killing cis men and cis women because domestic violence is also a, a leading cause of death for women. Right, but it is also the same toxic masculinity that is performed by white men who yeah. feel like they need to go to these protests, these BLM protests, and kill black people. Yeah, It is the same toxic masculinity. Anybody who's listening to this, not necessarily trans, not necessarily black, but could be you know, both of those things, curious, what, what, what do each of us do to help disrupt the gender binary to move in, you know, towards a world where the gender binary doesn't dictate how we live? Explore ourselves internally. Hmm. And I, I think some people would be think that's such an underwhelming thing to say. But if you think about the amount of people who are not mm. doing that, it is not yeah. underwhelming at all. It is actually this is the work that we need to be doing, mm. um, exploring ourselves internally, where we are breaking our own barriers and breaking down the idea of how we should act, challenging our own parents. Mm. Our own upbringing. Hey, you're acting. Say you are a cis man that's not gay, but you know I know a lot of southern men that um, I don't know if it's a southern th- southern thing, and I think it is. But a lot of a lot of southern men come off as queer because they can be feminine in some ways. Mm. And I have seen a lot of, a lot of southern men battle with themselves to to act more masculine. And mm. and I, and I really just want to say to these folks, why can't you just why can't you just accept yourself? for how you are right now, because mm. I don't see what's wrong with how you are. You know who you are. Mm. You know who you're attracted to. Mm. Be secure in that. Yeah. And like, also, you never know what 
random cis het man who's feminine will see you and think, oh, it is okay for me to behave this way. Mm. Oh, I will still get married to a woman that will be completely fine mm. with how I behave or act. I, I really, really want, and I say this to my father as well. <laughs> I think that my father has been saying this. And I was raised by my mom. Like when I say this side of my family and that side of my family, I'm actually talking about my mom's families, mm. my black side and my Asian side of my mm. families. However, um, my dad would pick me up every now and then, and um, I would have to spend a month with him where he lived. And I am very, very, very sure that he may have been bisexual, pansexual at one point in his life, and, mm. and he just like suppressed that as much as he could. And I just feel like, and I know he's happy with his wife. I'm not saying he's not, but I feel like he projected a lot onto not just my mom, but a lot of people that I've seen seen him around. Mm. And he's been, he was, even to me, he was really nasty to a bunch of folks. Mm. And I really think that's because he suppressed those parts of himself and I really wish that he could have been, he felt more comfortable. I wish he could have felt more comfortable in exploring those things, mm. even if he didn't do anything, but at least accepting that this was a part of him too, because I think he would have been so much happier mm. um, and so much less traumatic to other people. Mm. Um, he seems happy now, but it, it appears every time I go to his church and he's preaching at um, Bible school, the first thing that he's preaching is about not having gay friends and mm. queer people and reject all the queers and this and that. And, and it just feels like such projection. And I just want to say to you, like, it is okay to be queer. Like, dad, just mm. like, just accept yourself. But mm. I think, and I'm saying this to my brother, my older brother too, in that I see him fight with a lot of his demons mm. um, still. And he's much older. He's almost a decade older than me. And I really, I have tried to reach out to him so many times and say, you know, let's just sit down and have a conversation about masculinity what's mm. what is what it means to be a man because i think i understand more so now what you're going through than you did before and i think i could help you find ways to kind of like reconcile the feelings that you're having for being a black man and how you're supposed to perform and how our mom raised us right and in terms of driving this idea into us that we need to be white that we need mm. to assimilate into whiteness and how that also played into a lot of his toxic masculinity. But yeah, mm. I think if I was to say anything to anyone, it's just take the time to explore yourself for yourself because you deserve to know all parts of you mm -hmm. that aren't affected by what people want you to be. Mm. Um, and I think it would be easier for anyone because it some, some people talk, call this toxic femininity, but I think it's also based in tox toxic masculinity. When women reinforce this idea that uh, other women should be wives and shouldn't have jobs or should submit to men. Call it whatever you want. I think it's all related to toxic masculinity as well. And yeah. I think it is related, again, to not being able to explore yourself. And I'm glad that other non-binary people exist. Um, I know within the trans and non-binary movement, a lot of people don't like this idea that a lot of cis women are calling themselves non-binary cis women. But I think what they're not understanding is that these women have taken the time to explore their gender and their identity and to say, okay, I know that I am a woman, but I don't have to perform the roles that are attached to, to womanhood. Mm. And I think that's really important. And I think a lot of cis men can learn from these very same cis women, not just mm. the trans community, but these cis women that are sitting here and saying, yeah, I'm a woman, but I'm a non-binary woman. Mm. And this means this, this, and that to me because mm. 
this idea of femininity doesn't apply to me, or I feel more masculine. So although I do identify as a woman, I want to present in this way, or I may act in this way, and that's okay. Mm. And so I just wish people would take the time to explore for themselves who they are. I think what I'm hearing from you, my takeaway from what I what I heard is um, an invitation to our own happiness, mm -hmm. and that happiness that that uh, happiness comes from an exploration of who we are. Mm -hmm. You said who we are without these systems that have told us who we are. Mm -hmm. Who are we beyond that? But I, I, I really, it's a core, you said, especially about your dad, it's an invitation for our happiness and to make space for that. And mm -hmm. I think that's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, I think so many trans people are demanded to find at least a part of that by definition and coming out as trans and realizing that we're trans, we have to say, oh, this is who I am. Mm -hmm. This is what makes me happy. Um, and I think that I think that a lot of people can learn from that, can take something from that to say, who am I and what makes me happy and how do I cultivate more of that? I really appreciate you taking the time oh, of course. Um, and, uh, and sharing your experience, your wisdom, parts of your family and, and such. So um, thank you again for, for being here today. Thanks for the conversation. And it's good to see you as always. And I would love to see you outside of work as well. Yeah, let's Hopefully find, find more space happen. for joy. <laughs> I had so much fun having this conversation with Devin Norell. As I said in the episode, it's not often that we get to sit down together, and I hope that we can have some time in 2024 that does not involve work. In any case, thanks so much to Devin Norell for taking the time. Let's address the question directly. How do we undo the gender binary? One of the things that Devin Norell focused on in our discussion was the specific conversation about who are we when we are not in defiance of systemic oppression? Who are we when we're not tired? One of my favorite things that Devin Norell said was, you deserve to know all parts of you that are not affected by what people want you to be. And Z was talking about the concept of doing away with the gender binary, starting with exploring ourselves internally. And this isn't a, a sort of just like, oh, think about yourself. This is a real questioning, a real diving into who we are to understand where can we be more rebellious. And this word rebellious was also something that came up in the conversation that I wanted to highlight because oftentimes rebelliousness is seen as bad, as something that we're doing to throw away the rules or to go against somebody else. And in some ways, that is what rebelling against society is. But really, it's wondering who we are accessing who we are. And one of the things that systemic oppression takes from everybody, including those that might not think that they're oppressed, such as maybe white people or cisgender people, people who are not trans, is the ability to access all of who we are. As Devin Norell said, the gender binary hurts everyone. It hurts cis people, it hurts trans people, it hurts white people, it hurts people of color. It hurts everyone because it tells everybody that they have to be this one version of themselves that fits society's narratives, that conforms and allows them safety and survival. And I think what Devin Norell is trying to offer us and a lot of the trans community is to say, wait, hey, everybody, there's more here, right? And there's more of you here that is waiting to be discovered and waiting to be welcomed by you. I hope that this episode encouraged you to think a little bit more about who you are, why you are who you are, and where maybe there's parts of yourself that you're hiding. Maybe this episode can be an invitation to investigate more of yourself, to try to be more brutally honest to yourself about yourself. Join us in a couple weeks for another episode of Dear Skyler. Thanks for listening.